Wow. You know what's cool about being a part of a church that sees mission as important? Um, we've had no heat in our building for a while. Anybody notice that? Um, but we have a plan, and the reason we haven't fixed that is because it's all part of the plan. But just so you know, like we, we wanted to take care of that across the street because those guests are important to us. Um, and so it, not that you're not important to us, um, but that's, that's something like, I remember it, when I was in college, I went to a, a Christian university and they were updating the buildings um, as they got aged out. And one of the things that stood out to me was that the administration building where the president's office was, was one of the very last buildings that they remodeled or that they, that they built a new one. He was basically saying, um, it's, my, my position is not the most important position. It's the students. And so he, he made that declaration by, and maybe it was intentional, maybe it was just all part of the master plan like ours, but it said something to me as a student that this university puts its students first. And so it says something when we step up and we say, hey, we're going to take care of this right now. They're not waiting because those people that are served there, those people that are serving there are important. And it's just a cool, a cool illustration, whether it's conscious or unconscious. And so um, I'm, I'm really glad to be a part of a church that sees serving and serving those that are vulnerable and in need as important. Um, I hope you're glad of that too. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just really cool to see. Um, so now we get to jump into our sermon today. It's, uh, we're going to pick up in, in the story, um, the book of Acts, uh, still in chapter 2. Um, in 2020, we're going to be preaching in this book of Acts, and it's going to be something that I think, I know that for me, it's already been incredibly challenging as we look at the life of the early church, um, but it strikes me. When I read the scriptures, it doesn't just tell me a story. Um, it's, it's teaching me something about who God is, and, and it confronts me in my daily life, and, and things stand out to me, and, and I hope when I come up here to share, I'm going to share with you what God's speaking to me through his word and through the life that we live. And one of those things that God has brought back into my life uh, is Facebook. You guys are supposed to laugh at that. Uh, uh, no, I'm back on this, this social media thing. And, and it's amazing to me uh, because I read all these different things from different people. And, uh, it, you know, that's one of the wonderful and terrible things about social media Right? Is everybody has a platform to tell you what they think about things. Um, and, and they're all preaching, in a sense, and, and they're telling us things, and they're trying to say, you need to listen to this resource, and you need to listen to this resource. And do you ever notice that sometimes, depending on who the person is, the, the resources that they're quoting are contradictory? And this, this happens to us as we, you look through your social media feed, and, and I know if you're like me, and you're, you're just looking, or just observing, and you see you've got your friends over here, and they're quoting these resources, and then you got your friends over here, right? And they're quoting not those resources, a whole other set of resources. And they're listening to these guys, and they're listening to these guys, and these guys are listening to the thing that confirms what they think and feel and believe, and these guys are listening to the thing that confirms what they think and feel and believe. Anybody notice that? And these guys are saying, hey, you're, you're only listening to the resources that, that confirm what you think, feel, and believe, and these guys over here are saying, well, you're only listening to the resources that confirm what you think, feel, and believe. You notice that? And neither one's going, I'm only listening to the... Re there's, there's this thing, it's actually like provable in the psychology of the human being. It's called confirmation bias. What happens is we, we want to listen to things that confirm what we believe because it makes us feel more comfortable. What's interesting to me, and, and I think for Christians, we have to recognize that it's a part of our sin nature. It make, it's part of what makes us proud and arrogant. And, and what we have to recognize is that when we come to the Word of God... It is not something that is going to confirm our confirmation bias. Okay, if you're only hearing the things in the Word of God that, that make you feel good, you're not listening. In fact, Jesus, when he comes to somebody, he comes in, and almost in every scenario, when there's a sin issue, he confronts it head on first and destroys that, and then they move into a relationship together. They don't come, and he doesn't come and make you feel better first. He oftentimes, he, even in his confrontation, he's making people feel better. But he's, he's, he's tackling those issues. And when we come to the Word of God, it's going to confront us and then comfort us, challenges us, and encourages us. We have to recognize it. I think one of the most important things we can do is recognize where that's at. Do you know that if you're only believing in Christianity because of a confirmation bias, you're not going to tell the right story. 
You need an experience with God. You need to lean into the truth of his word and let it transform you and not just go with what you've been taught. It's what we pray for as parents, that our kids' faith wouldn't be just our faith taught to them, but that they would actually have an experience and encounter the Holy Spirit and have a faith of their own, that it would transform their hearts and lives, and that's what we need. See, we live in a world that's more skeptical than ever of media and anything like that that's portraying just one side of things. As humans, we actually have a tendency to only see the facts that support our view. But here's the, here's the fact. I'm not just talking about news media, okay? What is it that can actually transform somebody's point of view? How is it that we do that? And I look at the, at the way that the church has done evangelism and, and actually saw it on Facebook last night. It's actually one of my cousins. She posted a video of, of a, a, a class of middle schoolers that are coming and they're part of this, they're part of an Islamic um, program. And there's a group of Christians holding signs up, protesting, but the protest signs say you need to believe or you're going to go to hell. And, and I'm going, <clears throat> is, that how we, is that how we communicate the gospel? Does that transform anybody's point of view? <laughs> no. So what is it that can do that? It, it's not going to be holding up a sign. It's not going to be just putting up words. Ultimately, it comes down to the fact that the Holy Spirit has to be at work. But when we look at Scripture, there's only one thing, and I think this, this is true in, in, in everything, there's only one thing that can really, really confirm and transform somebody's mind and, and mindset, is that is undeniable proof. Undeniable proof. The hard part in our world today is everybody's claiming undeniable proof. <laughs> so it has to be even more undeniable than other people's undeniable truth. Okay? And that's what we're going to hear about today. We're going to hear about a story in the scriptures where 3,000 people in one day have their minds transformed. It's incredible. Because it's not just any proof. It's the proof of the power of God. It's proof of the power of the Holy Spirit and the power that the Holy Spirit has to transform a human being. So when it comes down to it, that's what he's trying to do. He's going to make us witnesses, not just to tell a story, but that our lives actually become physical evidence of the power of God. And when we tell some story, but we don't have the evidence, it's not going to communicate. So how is it that this happens? See, the Holy Spirit is, is given so that we can have the power to be witnesses to, to do the work of Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, our lives are, are to present compelling evidence that Jesus really does change everything. That's what the Holy Spirit was given for. We saw last week as we started the second chapter of the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit, this promised gift that Jesus said, hey, I'm going to go to the Father, and when I leave, you guys don't fear because I'm going to send you the helper, and it's actually going to be better that I go. Jesus said some pretty crazy things about the power of the Holy Spirit. He said that you're going to do even greater things than me. And this is how, the power of the Holy Spirit. So last week, we launched into this, uh, well, the Pentecostal movement as we saw the power of the Holy Spirit that was promised came to the people that were waiting for it. And it came in, in a mighty rushing wind, and it came in, in things like divided tongues of fire that landed on their head, and it came in the fact that they all were speaking in different tongues, and that those tongues were being heard by people who had come to Jerusalem from all over the, the area, and they were hearing the, the word of God in their own languages. It was incredible, and I picture that day, and I'm just, I'm blown away by it. God has some pretty cool special effects, and he does it throughout scripture. You read it. It's, it's not, and, and some people don't like it when God does that, but it tells us something, that there is a power beyond our material world. It says, pay attention, and that's what happened on that day as this mighty rushing wind comes in and these divided, as these tongues of fire that divided and rested on them and the fact that they're all speaking in tongues, it would have been kind of crazy, like kind of chaotic. But each person heard it in their own language. That's what the scripture says. And then something happens. See, this, then we're going to see where we pick up today as this experience has happened and now 
they're standing there, and this is why I believe that it happened in the temple, is because all these people are now coming to them. This huge crowd of people is gathered together now. There were 120 followers of Jesus that were waiting, that were, had been meeting in the upper room. And today, there are, and they were all in one place, and this experience happens. And now there's thousands of people gathered around. And they've heard the languages, and they're drawn to the special effects, and they're going, what is going on? And that's where we get to pick up the story today. This is Acts chapter 2. Verse 14, it says, but Peter, standing with the 11, you remember who Peter is, right? Peter is one of the 12 disciples, and he's the one who kind of notoriously, boldly, well, he, he does all kinds of rash things, like he jumps out of the boat to go to Jesus, and he stands up to Jesus when, he, when Jesus is telling the disciples, you're going to betray me, and Peter stands up to Jesus, and he says, I'll never betray you, I'll die for you. I would die with you. And Jesus looks at Peter and he goes, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. This is Peter. And Peter does exactly that. He denies even knowing Jesus. That's this bold, confident man we see today. As Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And I'm picturing, right, I'm picturing what it would have been like on that day to be standing amongst the thousands and Peter standing up in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim this message. No microphone, right? We have a microphone and ampli- ampli- eh. amplification, I can say a word, uh, that allows us, and we, we have this little space. If I didn't have a microphone, you could still hear me in here. But this was a space that was open and, and Peter's just going to stand and preach. And the the apostles are standing there with him. And Peter steps up and he says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Always good when starting a sermon to go ahead and crack a joke. <laughs> right? At the end of... <laughs> The, the, the sermon last week, we saw that as the people were hearing this, some were amazed at the fact that they heard the languages, and others were going, these guys are drunk. Because they're just, they didn't, maybe they didn't hear, their, they weren't hearing a language that they understood, and so they're like, they're drunk. And Peter's going to, right off the bat, he's going to tell them, that's not what's happening here. He says, it's only the third hour of the day. It's basically like saying, it's 9 a.m., and I know some of you, because you listen to too much country music, you're going, but it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> no, Peter is going to straight up just tell him, no, no, no. These men have not been drinking. These people that you've been hearing, they're not crazy. Something else is happening. And I believe even those people that were mocking God, they couldn't deny the power. <laughs> they couldn't. They wanted to. And why would they want to? This is this little confirmation bias thing. Like We don't want to believe that because this could potentially change our lives. We don't want to. So, he says, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. There are always going to be people that will want to mock God. And honestly, when I look around at the things that are done in the name of Jesus around the world sometimes, it makes sense why people mock it. It makes sense to me sometimes. And I, I feel irritated with what, what people pass off as a Christian thing, as if it represents Jesus. And I know that many of you feel the same way. It's hard. And so it puts even more responsibility on those who are trying to genuinely follow Jesus, because we almost have to apologize for the other ones, <laughs> and then say, but that's, can, you, can you put that aside, put that bias aside? You don't just, don't just look at that and let that confirm your bias, but actually look at those that are actually trying to follow Jesus and listen to the words. Because you can tell, you know, I think even non-Christians, some of them maybe even better than others, even sometimes even better than Christians, they can tell when someone's got a genuine faith. They can see it. And they can spot the phonies too, and they may not notice it like I'm telling you today, but they can see it. 
But if they're looking for a reason to disbelieve God, the evidence is there. And so we have an extra special challenge today because we have to then make up the ground and to, and to show the gospel and its reality to people and sometimes overcome their biases. And why was it that they, were ha- they would have such an aversion to this? Because many of them, they, they've come to Jerusalem and they'd heard about who Jesus was. Because I'll tell you what, even though in that day they didn't have social media, they didn't have any of the modern technology that we had, word would have spread about what was happening in Israel to the Jews that were outside of Israel. They would have heard about it. They would have been curious. And so they heard about this Jesus. They heard about the uprising. They heard about the following. They heard about the miracles. And they heard about it, and much to their, many of them might have been even wanting to see it, but they come about 50 days too late. They're coming to Jerusalem for the festival of weeks, Pentecost, and Jesus is gone. And so some of them may have had a seed planted in their, in their minds, in their hearts, of hearing of who this Jesus was. But he died. He died a brutal death on the cross. And so they're coming, and they're not necessarily looking to go that route. <laughs> right? Because when your leader dies that kind of death, then the people that say, I'm going to follow him, are saying, I'm willing to go that way too. And for this group of people, they would not have wanted to willingly say, yeah, that sounds good to me. That sounds like life. I want to die (laughs) brutally. I want to be scorned and mocked and ridiculed by the people that I've grown up with. So it would have taken something incredible. See, because to truly follow Jesus means being willing to give up your comfort for the good of others hearing and knowing the gospel. When we truly follow Jesus, at the heart of that is the call to come, take up your cross and follow. And that term, take up your cross, means to give up your life. To be willing to say, I'm going to put aside my comfort to serve you. That's why our world, when it sees an in a sense, an antichrist, somebody who's, and I'm not calling them that, but it's opposed to Jesus, is somebody who's saying, you need to turn your life around. I'm not giving you anything. Jesus is saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to give my life so that you can find life. Because to truly follow him means you're, you're, you're willingly accepting that. Willingly. Because when someone is willing to give up everything for the gospel, it challenges everyone around them to live up to that challenge. It challenges everyone. That's one of the reasons why missionaries and foreign missions are so important, because it's, it's a person who's saying, I'm giving up my life to go live somewhere else to tell people about Jesus. And when we hear from missionaries, it challenges us to say, hey, is it worth my life? You may not be called to go somewhere, but you're called to live with the same mission to give up our lives and our comforts to seek the good of others that they might know who Jesus is and and be a part of the family. But we have to be careful that we don't fall into the temptation of kind of just going with mediocrity (laughs) and saying, oh, but that's just for the special, the elite, the called, and I'm just a normal, everyday Christian. I just go to church and, I mean, I'll pay my tithe. And what's gonna, what we're going to hear from Peter and what we're going to see through the book of Acts is that that option was not available to them. And it wasn't meant to be available to us. That there isn't a separate calling for the elite, but that when we believe in Jesus and trust in him, we receive the same power to live the same mission, not for another purpose. See, when you have the Holy Spirit, your life takes on a new responsibility one that sometimes is uncomfortable. Sometimes we'd rather not. I mean, sometimes it's, it's, it's even Christians that are uncomfortable with the calling that other Christians feel. She's like, well, if you're living that way, does that mean that I need to? And trust me, God speaks individual callings to us. I'm not saying he doesn't. But it's not supposed to be like something that you can just applaud in someone else and not seek to follow in your own life. That's not how we communicate the gospel. 
It works best when everybody who's accepted Jesus and has the power of the Holy Spirit is living that calling out in their daily life. It's something that when that happens, people take notice. People take notice. It becomes a part of the overwhelming experience. It becomes a part of the overwhelming uh, proof (laughs) that Jesus really does change everything. When those who call on his name who say we have this power, actually are allowing him to work through them and transform their lives. So this group of people that are all gathered together, they're hearing the message from Peter, and this is what he's going to say. Because these are Jews. These are people who, who have a firm foundation in the Old Testament scriptures. They would have That's why they're there. These are the people that have made the pilgrimage for the Feast of Weeks, okay? You understand what I'm saying? They're in the temple on the the day of Pentecost to worship. They're devout, and they're coming, and this is what they're going to hear. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is verse 16. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter, speaking to a group of Jews, not prepared. He's he's not been writing this sermon, right? He didn't have the benefit of that I've had coming to this. And some of you are going, did you really? (laughs) He didn't didn't pre-plan this. The Holy Spirit is speaking through him as he opens his mouth. And out comes prophecy. This is Joel. Hey, people, you guys know this. Do you remember this prophecy? Do you wonder what it was going to be like when it was fulfilled? You're, about, you're witnessing it right now, and you're seeing something beginning that was told in our faithful tradition that this is what was going to come. This outpouring. Did you notice who gets the outpouring? Everybody. Sons and daughters, young and old, male and female, Even the servants, okay, that's another just way of saying that across all classes, it's not for the elite, it's not just for the poor, it's for everybody, that this power, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all of them to prophesy. You might think that term means to tell the future, okay, that's one type of prophecy, but another type of prophecy is to to speak the truth of God to people. It's not always something that means that I'm telling you the future. (laughs) We wish we all had that kind of prophecy, right? Or maybe not. But sometimes it's just speaking the truth. Sometimes it's telling somebody what God has said to them through the word, through the power of the Holy Spirit and confirmed by the Holy Spirit that that was going to be a gift that was given to everybody, to dream dreams, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to see visions, to trust God in unreal ways, and it's going to happen. Now, all of that couldn't have taken place in the time from the start of the day of Pentecost to now. Peter is saying that this is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled. These things, not all of them had happened yet. And yet, at the same time, he's quoting, you notice that Joel lays out that In this time, God's going to use his special effects. Did you catch that? He says that uh, wonders from the heavens and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, that the sun would be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, that this would all be a sign of the coming of the day of the Lord. Jesus' life marked this. The day that he died, Good Friday, we call it, it says that that the The heavens went dark, midday. That was a sign. That was a a special effect, if you will. 
It wasn't fake, <laughs> like a movie. It was a genuine thing. The, the sun was, cut, was blocked out. And, and because of that, the moon would have, when it rose, it, it rose in red. That this was, a, this was a mark, a sign to the people prophesied in Joel that this was the coming of the day of the Lord. And it says that it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter is telling them that day has come to pass. They, had a, they would have heard about it. Even as they heard about all the other things Jesus had done, they would have heard about his crucifixion and they would have heard about the fact that on that day, for some strange reason, the sun went dark. You know what? That would have been something that stood out to people even if they didn't believe. And so they're, they're, they're recalling this and they're going, yeah, I did hear that. Man, this is that day. The day of the Lord. When we call on the name of the Lord, we shall be saved. How is it that this is possible? How is this salvation possible? Tell us, Peter, <laughs> right? At this point, they're listening and they're going, what is going on here? This is the weirdest day ever. <laughs> and he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves no, even those that were traveling, they, they had heard and they had knew. This Jesus delivered up according to you, uh, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Hang on to that fact. This Jesus delivered up according to the de definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Isn't that interesting? We see two parts of this. Delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And who is it that Peter says killed him? You, by the hands of lawless men. So we see both things at work. We see the choice of the people and we see the definite foreknowledge of God at work. That they're not mutually exclusive. God had a plan. The people had their decisions to make and they go hand in hand. God knew that they would put him to death by the hands of lawless men, not the Jews. The Jews didn't actually do the killing. They just yelled, crucify him, crucify him, and they lied about him. They knew that the Roman government would do the execution, that Jesus dying on a cross was a form of Roman execution. This wasn't a Jewish punishment. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Again, he's quoting Psalm. David wrote this. It says, brothers, in verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David is, quoting, is quoted here. He's quoted, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about the one who would come, as we've seen in the Gospels, in the line of David. Jesus' human descent was through the line of David. That this fulfills a prophecy that God would establish his kingdom forever. It also says that his body would not see corruption. Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. But not only that, He's the reason, because of that, he is the reason that we dwell in hope. 
He's the reason that that prophecy, in fact, is true of David in another sense. His body may have decayed, but if he trusted in the Lord, he did not see corruption. And this is the same that that promises for us. That David wrote the Psalms, this Psalm, hundreds of years earlier, but it was it is speaking of someone greater than David. Jesus was the Holy One whose soul was not abandoned to the grave. And what is it that Jesus said on the cross? You remember in one of his last sayings, as he's hanging on the cross, he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? See, he bears that burden, but was he truly forsaken? In that moment, the Father looks away, but it's part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that he would pick up his life, that he's forsaken so that we do not have to be. Jesus' body saw no corruption, no deterioration. Jesus is both, or David was both dead and buried, but Jesus is the only one who died and was buried, but didn't stay buried. Okay, even Lazarus, he was raised again, but he died again. Jesus died, was buried, but didn't stay buried. He didn't die again. He lives, and that's why we say he lives eternally. This is all a part of the gospel. This is all part of the good news. Amen. It is Jesus alone who shows us the paths of life. It is Jesus alone who has loosed the pangs of death. Don't use the word pangs very often. Do you use it? What is pangs? A pang is a sudden sharp pain or painful emotion. So Peter's saying, because of what Jesus has done, death no longer has with it that sudden pain or that painful emotion for those who trust in God. There's so many things that Jesus does and that Jesus does for us. But when it comes down to it, it's good news. <laughs> It's the gospel because Jesus has removed the pangs of death. He's removed it. It's what Peter's saying. It's why we, like, unlike any other group of people on the planet, we rejoice most in death. It's strange, isn't it? It almost feels wrong. How many of you have ever been to the memorial service of a loved one who trusted in Jesus? And you almost feel guilty that you're not more sad. Because the pang is gone. It doesn't mean that there's not missing, okay? That's, that's another kind of emotion. That's not the same thing. It doesn't mean that there's not sadness. You're not going to see that person's face anymore. And that's why we do cry at, at even Christian memorials. We, we are sad in one sense, but it's not the pangs. <laughs> it's the gospel. That, the, that death no longer has that sting. This is gonna, Peter's going to go on. He says, this Jesus. I love that he keeps quoting this Jesus. You know what I, what I hear as a, it, just as I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking about the fact that there are people out there in the world that are quoting Jesus, but they're like doing things that Jesus didn't do and saying things that Jesus would never have said. It's almost like we need to go to people and we say, but this Jesus, not that Jesus, this Jesus, this is what this Jesus says. This is what this Jesus did. This is the real Jesus. That one, they're saying the name, but they don't know what they're talking about. They got like a badge and an ID card, but it's phony. <laughs> this Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are, we all are witnesses. It's talking about these people here this group that he's standing with. We're witnesses. Many of the people that were out there, they may have seen it. They saw Jesus die. They may have even heard about his resurrection. It says that Jesus appeared to about 500 people. We here are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, 
that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, this is David again prophesying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He again is the fulfillment of this prophecy. We talked about this in our our series in Hebrews. This Jesus says that he will sit at his right hand until he makes his enemies his footstool. How many of you have an ottoman? Anybody? Because any Ottomans out there? Recliners? Who's an Ottoman person and who's a recliner person? See, I would be a recliner person, but for some reason, Kayla is opposed to recliners. <laughs> anyway, so we have 18 Ottomans in our house. <laughs> An Ottoman is a great thing. You know what it says? Put your feet up. Take a load off. Kick back. Relax. We use it to change diapers on. <laughs> okay? And that's my new picture of what an Ottoman's purpose is. <laughs> this is what's said about Jesus. This one. He would make his enemies his footstool. That this enemy, there's a real enemy in this world. And one of his most powerful tools is the tool of death. To strike fear into people. That This is saying that Jesus, because of what he's done, would make this enemy and even his most powerful tool, death, servant to those who trust in him. That he would be the place we put our feet up. (laughs) And isn't that just a strange thing to think about? And the, the way that Paul goes on to talk about it in the book of Romans is that we are more than conquerors. I love that terminology. Because somebody who defeats his enemy kills him or does away with them. But to, make, to be more than a conqueror means that you not only defeat them, but you actually make them a slave. <laughs> okay? And now we don't believe in that slavery stuff. But in this case, we're talking about the enemy of, the, of God. <laughs> that It says that Jesus actually is going to make him his footstool. Paul says that we're more than conquerors. That means even the things that the enemy wants to use to destroy us actually serve us. That Jesus has turned death. Even the plan of the enemy was to try and destroy Jesus. And the enemy didn't even realize he was playing right into the plan of God. That through that, through these lawless people, that God's plan for the salvation of the world would go forth. That now death becomes a servant to those who trust in Jesus because it takes us to meet him. Isn't that incredible? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Do you know what that tells me? Jesus is plan A. (laughs) He's plan A. Not plan B. Not God was thrown off. He's plan A for the salvation, that we could be people who come to God not based on our own righteousness, not based on our own righteousness, not based on what we feel like we can offer him, but because of who he is, and that these gifts are given to us in grace, including the gift of the Holy Spirit, that now he has made our enemy our footstool. It's pretty awesome, (laughs) just saying. We're not abandoned because he was abandoned on the cross. We have life because he faced death. We sing about it every Sunday morning. We have joy because he took the pain and suffering we deserve. And he's given us life and joy and gladness to all those who trust in him. See, the crowd, they've witnessed something incredible. <laughs> Looking over what we've already talked about through this book of Acts, they've seen something They've seen and heard evidence. Can I tell you, if that was where it ended, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be enough to convince anybody these days. 
Like anybody can put on a good show. But you know what's going to transform the world? To this day, it still does. When the Holy Spirit gets a hold of a life and completely transforms them. Because this group that's standing up here with Peter, they're not just going to preach a Sunday sermon and then walk off. They're going to face death. The, the apostles, they all did it. John's the only one who didn't die, but that wasn't because they weren't trying. He was boiled. <laughs> if you didn't know that, you can go study history. <laughs> Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified right side up because that was what Jesus did, and he didn't, want to, he didn't feel like he deserved that. You want to know what transformed the world? The power of the Holy Spirit matched up with a life lived by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. They go hand in hand. It's a, it's a really powerful evangel, evangelism strategy. It's almost like God planted himself. And we see all over the place. We see people who are, who are almost doing one or the other. <laughs> They're trying to preach a message, but their life is not matching up with a life that's been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it tells a lie. Or they're living a life of love, but they're not preaching the truth, and they're not pointing people to Jesus, and they call it good news. It also tells a lie. To live both. To live both, to be willing to boldly proclaim the good news and the truth of God's word in love, but also to live a life that's seeking to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what God's called us to do. And that's what these apostles were going to go do. Not just walk off and be like, peace, <laughs> you heard the message. You sinners. <laughs> now, but they live it. This is how the sermon, so the, Peter preaches this sermon. And this is what happens. It says in Acts 2, 37. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for, catch this, you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I'm so glad Peter said that. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I'd say that's some fruit. <laughs> and you know what is amazing? Because, because where this is taking place in the time frame of this, this is the fruit of Jesus' life and ministry. Because of what Jesus did and the way he lived, that even his death, and even though he's gone now, the people around are going, man, there was something about that. And now Peter's going to come and say, let me tell you why. This is still the gospel. This Jesus, he's going to give you this power. And it makes sense to this group of people. What's so cool is it says that they were cut to the heart. Remember something else about Peter? What happened the night that Jesus was betrayed. As the group of soldiers come to arrest him, what does Peter do? You guys remember? He pulls out a sword and he cuts an ear off. <laughs> How many of you are thinking, that's my guy right there? If you come in to arrest Jesus, I'm going to cut your ear off. I and mean, he probably wasn't trying to get his ear. Just saying. And Jesus... He does something, and this, is, this marks the life and love of Jesus. He doesn't want to destroy their earthly life. He wants to save them. And he puts the ear back on. And he tells Peter, that's not the kind of sword I want you swinging. He says, that's not the way I want you to get at these people. Notice that, that in this, after the sermon, they're cut to the heart. And this, this is like a a really interesting fulfillment of Peter's desire, right? To, uh, to defend Jesus. And now he gets to go and do it, but he has the power that Jesus had. He's not trying to cut anybody's head off. But he's got this gift that Jesus had that when he spoke to people, it was like he's reading your mail. <laughs> 
It's like he, he, he can tell you exactly where you're going off. And Peter is doing this now, and he tells him, and it's cutting them to the heart. He's not swinging the sword. He's swinging the sword of the Spirit now. <laughs> Cut to the heart. 3,000 people get saved. 3,000 people have such an overpowering experience, and they see such an overpowering truth in the lives of this group of people that it puts them to, in a place where they can no longer just go with the status quo, that they're going to decide, you know what, this is true. And even though this means I have to switch my mindset about who God is and how to live for him, I'm going to do it because I see the overwhelming evidence. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in us that when we live by the power of the Holy Spirit, it becomes, it, it matches up with the story that we tell, that we don't tell a different story than the one that Jesus started, that our lives can produce the kind of compelling evidence that would move people to break out of the biases and preconceived ideas and be willing to open to be open to hearing about who Jesus is. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in you that is going to match up with the work of the Holy Spirit in another person that allows us to be, in some amazing way, a part of that. And if you've ever gotten to be a part of, of even just having somebody experience Jesus a little bit, it's unbelievable. It's not because you're good, <laughs> but it's just, you get to just see it. And, and our prayer, and I think it's one of the challenges of preaching, is like to get up here and say, I want this in my life. I don't do it perfectly. You know what? Peter, Peter's going to go on and he's going to have times where he doesn't get it right. And the apostles, they got to they gotta be accountability to one another. But he's going forward as, as a person who's seeking the transformation of the Holy Spirit, not just seeking the confirmation of the way I look at life. We can't come to God that way. So we have to recognize it and seek him, even in the midst of the things that we think are right. So we need this hope. We need to live this kind of dual threat life, Christians, with the power of the gospel that tells us that we don't need to fear death, and with the power of the Holy Spirit that tells us this is how to live. And then if we do that, we can make an impact in our community. We can make an impact in the world, and that's what Jesus has called us to do. And I love the fact that Peter lines out, who's this gift for? You, your children, those who are far off, and those, every single person whom the Lord calls to himself. Because there are people that think that the gift of the Holy Spirit is no longer a thing that we should seek. It's like, What? those guys needed it, how much more do we need it? <laughs> that if we believe, if we've repented, we believe, we be, we're baptized, we, that's just an outward symbol of saying, I believe, I'm trusting Jesus, that the, this gift is promised to us, and we need it if we're going to be his witnesses. And again, over the course of this series, you're going to hear more about this gift of the Holy Spirit, and I pray that it encourages you when you, when you leave here, when you're focused, this this morning as you come and receive communion, as we sing, that you ask God, you ask the Holy Spirit, come and be in me. And I'll tell you what, there's just a little bit of repentance that needs to happen. Because many of us have received that gift and we're ignoring it when it's uncomfortable. And, you, and we need to come in this morning and say, Holy Spirit, I'm sorry. Help me. Help me to trust you. Help me to be on your team. Help me to put aside these things that are causing me to not want to trust you and live for you. That I could be a more effective witness. And that's our prayer this morning. As the band is going to come, we're going to come and we're going to receive communion. And this is an opportunity for us to reflect, to ask God, is there anything in me that's going on in my life that's, that, that I'm holding up that's, that's causing me to hinder the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, to repent of that, to break free of that, to not let those things continue to, to stymie the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to sing. We're going to thank God for the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives.
So we need the hope that comes from Jesus rising from the dead. <laughs> right? That's good news. We need the power that was promised if we're going to follow him. Amen? We need both. Man, would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your plan. Amazing. As if you need us to tell you good job. As we look at it and we, we're blown away by the scope of it. And that here we are thousands of years later and you're still working in this way. You're still offering life and you're still offering power. I pray that in this room would be people whose lives are not just nominally yours, but that we would open our lives to the power of the Holy Spirit. That if we truly want to see people's lives changed, we have to allow that change to take place in us. And sometimes it's inconvenient. Sometimes it doesn't feel pleasant. Your word says no discipline is pleasant at the time, but it produces a harvest of right behavior. So we pray in our lives that we would be people of repentance, that we wouldn't tell a lie about who you are. Pray that you would go with us out into our lives, into our community, into our families, and help us to live the life you've called us to. I just want to ask this morning, if there's anybody in this room that's saying, I've never really trusted my life to Jesus, and I need to get that right today. It's to be your moment. You can just, if you want to just raise your hand, you're saying, today I'm trusting my life to Jesus. And then on the other side of that, is there anybody in this room who's saying, I trust you, Jesus, but I had I, I kind of been not paying attention to the Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit is, is, if you're trusting in Jesus, he is at work in your life. But today you're saying, I don't want it to be a work that I'm unconscious of. I want to actively allow the Holy Spirit in my life. If you're here this morning and you're saying, I want to allow the Holy Spirit to have access to all of me, would you raise your hand? There's no significance to this moment of raising your hand. I'm not counting. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> this, is, this is your chance to just make a physical declaration. I'm, I'm here, Jesus. I want that. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. I pray that we would get out of our own way and trust you. That you would remove the barriers of our our thought processes that, that we've clung to, that we would trust only in you and those things that, that are good, that we would be confirmed not in our bias, but that we'd be confirmed in the word of God. And if there are things in our lives that need to change that we may be holding on to, I pray that you would give us the grace and humility to walk in repentance and that we wouldn't do it secretly, hiding it from others in a shameful way, but we would do it in a way that glorifies our great Savior, Jesus, that you've taken that from us. So I pray for that truth to be shown in our lives. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.